You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey folks, happy Wednesday. Today's guest is Anish Chopra. Anish is a managing director at Portfolio Management Corporation. That is a mouthful for a company's name, so we commonly will refer to it as PMC throughout the interview. And we actually go through Anish's 20-year career at TD Asset Management, where we go through the evolution of the money management business uh, throughout that time, throughout his career. Not to mention, we also traverse into how he got his start, where he was an accountant, and we go into how he managed his way into go into the buy side, and also the transition from leaving one of the biggest asset management firms in Canada into a much smaller boutique that has under 10 people, and the mindset around that, and as well as the operational duties that differ from those two different firms. I think this interview itself was very valuable in that Anish comes with a wealth of experience, just time that we don't have in terms of, well, we as an I, someone in my uh, mid to late 20s. And so we hear things like what Anish's peer group, people who've had 20 or 30 years of experience, actually commonly look back on as thinking, hmm, I wish I did that. I wish I did this. And so those kind of career instances, I think, are extremely valuable for people that are younger. And I really do hope that you take out as much as I have from this interview and the various insights that you could potentially consider as a bit of history in terms of how the money management industry has evolved and how our careers should continue to evolve and adapt to the ever-changing environment. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Nish Chopra. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Anish Chopra. Anish is the Managing Director of Portfolio Management Corporation. And previously, he's had a very long, I would say close to a 20-year career at TD Asset Management. And so, Anish, thank you for coming on to our podcast. Um, and yeah, like if you could kind of maybe start off by explaining to the audience what uh, Portfolio Management Corporation is, just to give them a little understanding of what you do. Sure, it's uh, great to be here, Daniel. Portfolio Management Corporation uh, is a boutique wealth management firm uh, that looks after the investments for individuals, families, uh, corporations, and institutions. And we manage uh, across a variety of asset classes, uh, such as fixed income, so bonds, uh, equities, so common uh, common stocks, and we manage the asset allocation. So we make the individual uh, either stock decisions or bond decisions or preferred stock decisions on what to invest in, as well as manage uh, how much of each of the different asset classes uh, the different clients should be in. Cool, cool. Thank you. Thanks for the explanation. Um, yeah, like, you know, I think we first met at uh, the University of Waterloo when I got invited to come on and judge a stock competition that you 
are graciously the host of for the students. And you know, before we kind of get into the foray of your expertise in the investment area, I kind of wanted to start off with you know, going back to the way beginnings of like your childhood. Um, can you explain you know like where where did you grow up? Um, what was your kind of childhood career dream? Was it to be an investment manager when you were 13 years old? Uh, how did it all begin? Uh, yeah, well, that, I guess, brings me quite a ways back. I, I think starting out, I would have been no different than any other any other child, and that would have been uh, trying to be a firefighter or a police officer, and certainly that would have been the early beginnings. I grew up on a farm, and, uh, you know, there was, there was quite a bit of work, especially outdoors, and my thought was on some of the days when it was either really, really hot or really, really cold or really, really wet, that you know, working outdoors in the extreme conditions just wasn't going to be a lot of fun. So the thought process for me was, what, what do you enjoy doing? And it wasn't working with the elements at their extreme. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you think about other things? What other career paths are there? So I looked at a variety of career paths, no different than most people would look at across a variety of professions, you know, engineering, accounting, uh, medicine, uh, computer programming. Uh, so, but from that, uh, sort of as you get into high school, I started to get interested in the investing area. Mm. And it was when, and that would have probably been in later high school. And then it's like, okay, if I want to be, go down the investment path, what kind of background helps the most, right? So if you go down, let's say a medical path, you you will at some point be an investor, but the the direct education path is different, right? Like so, in medicine, it would be more of a an indirect path, whereas if you chose the accounting path, which is to me the language of business, that would be a far more direct path to get into the mm-hmm. investment business later on. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very different today than in those days to get into the investment business. In those days, you didn't have it wasn't as streamed, right? It wasn't as direct, because now you have the bigger firms and the, and the smaller firms, all firms have some sort of recruitment process at the universities, and it's, it's a much different path. You get the summer jobs and whatnot, but in those days, it was more, how do you get closer to, to the end career that you wanted? Right, right, and um, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot and reveal your age, but when you say in those days, is that closer to about 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, or? that would be about it. Yeah. 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 So so you're looking at uh, the, certainly the pre-early internet <laughs> days, right? And it was different, like things, but I would say it still took some time. So you're looking maybe 10, 15 years ago mm. when the um, when it started to get more streamlined, right? So there was direct recruiting for the investment banks, direct recruiting out of universities for the asset managers. So so it just became much more streamlined. And it's even more streamlined today mm-hmm. than it would have been even 10, 15 years ago. Right. Yeah. And um, so you, you kind of had the same thought process that I did too when I applied to accounting when I decided, okay, let's do accounting just because it's the language of business. Let's start with that. And so you know, we went to the same university. You went to University of Waterloo much earlier than I did, but you went there, and then you started out in accounting. You were an accountant, and then um, you started your foray into the finance world by joining TD, going into investment banking, and then doing the asset management route and staying there for a while until you decided to leave and go join um, Portfolio Management Corporation. 
And so how does that thought, how did that thought process work for you where um, I can see that you said, okay, I want to go into investment, so I'll do accounting, go into banking, and then go into asset management. How, how did that thought process stay for, okay, now I'm going to stay here for about 20 years and yeah, how, how how did all those decision making uh, come about for you? Right. So so there's there's quite a few decisions happening there, mm. right? So if you go back a lot, some is happening in late high school, right? And my thought process, other than accounting is a language of business, it, it was more if I'm able to do tax returns, I can always fall back on the basic skills I learned in accounting, right? Keeping mm. a company's books, doing tax returns. So if there's any career bumps in the road those those options still exist right so it's a really good fallback position so i think in today's investment lingo that would be like managing your risk mm-hmm. right so there's a fallback position what's my downside this is something that i could do for decades right if i wanted to but then if you're getting into accounting you do you do have you do have the need to figure out how to bridge into other areas in order to get into investments later on so that was okay so you get into accounting and then it's okay uh, where do you article do you, do you go into a smaller firm do you go into a larger firm if you get into a larger firm that's maybe more recognized does that help you try to get into investment banking so my thought process at the time was get the accounting education uh, get my CA uh, which today would be effectively the CPA, get the practical experience because I was going to leave before I'd qualified, and then try to get somehow into the investment business. At that time, it was harder to get directly into the investment business, at, at least it was for me, but there were more openings on the investment banking side. Mm. So my thought process at the time was if I can get closer to investments, and investment banking has you know the word investment in it but it's different but it's closer than the accounting business was right so if i can get into the investment banking business then you know it broadens my horizons Uh, i get numbers from a different angle so from from the accounting audit tax perspective is one thing from the business viewpoint of a buyer and seller of a business that'd be on the investment banking side or somebody needs to raise capital so I could get that experience as well. And then while I was there, an opportunity did open up to, to move on to the investment side, and that was at TD Asset Management. Mm. And while you were constantly thinking about going into the investment side, did you gravitate towards a style of investing as you continue to uh, educate yourself further in, in the investing world? Like for me, I, I immediately gravitated towards the more fundamental Buffett-Munger approach to investing. Whereas I know some other people choose a more systematic approach or more, some people love currency investing or I guess more currency trading. Uh, what, what was it like for you? Uh, Daniel, I would say it's n- no different than what, yeah, I, like I'm very similar in terms of background that way to you. So mm. fundamental mm. Uh, Buffett Munger value approach. And that's, uh, that's essentially the training I got, right? So the training was in accounting, understanding financial statements in the investment bank. So that would have been the style that I would have uh, enjoyed doing. And what, what my first career in the actual investment world was, was in effectively special situations investing. And that would have been areas like merger arbitrage, uh, 
distressed debt. So when you, when you think about it and you're saying, okay, slightly different than fundamental, right? In distressed debt, it is fundamental investing, right? But you're just, you know, looking at the equity asset class. So you're not looking at the common stock that trades, but you're looking at how to value the debt, right? So how much does a company make? But the equity at this point is, you know, if not worthless, very lowly valued. And so the value is probably in the debt. So where should the debt trade and where, where, where should we purchase it? Uh, in order to make a reasonable return over time. So that was part of it. The other, and that would be the most applicable to, let's say, fundamental investing. But then there would have been also merger arbitrage where, uh, let's say, a company is trading for $6 and all of a sudden an acquirer comes and says, okay, we're going to take this company out for $10 in cash. Now, what happens is the company's price, the stock price goes from $6, but it doesn't go to 10 generally right so it'll go to somewhere south of ten dollars call it i'm going to call it nine dollars because it's easy to do the math here right right so now it's much higher than nine dollars today but in order to do the math let's just say it's nine dollars right so when you're thinking about putting on the investment you're saying okay i've got one dollar of upside i've got three dollars of downside you know, should I do the investment? What's the probability of the deal going through? So the valuation work in a case like this is done for you, right? The, the corporate acquirers come along, they've put a price on the table, they believe that the value of the firm that they're buying is $10, but there's some risk in deal completion. So that's what can happen in the meantime. So do you need regulatory approval? So is there some type of competition bureau approval or some other types of approval that are required? There's generally shareholder approval that's required. There may be competition bureau approval. Uh, there's also the risk that there's some deterioration in the target company's fundamentals between the time the deal is announced and the time the deal closes. So some deals close very quickly mm -hmm. you know, in a few months. Other deals, because of competition issues or other types of issues, may take a year to close. So the longer the, longer the time to completion, a lot of other issues can creep up. The laws can change. The company, the, the target's fundamentals can deteriorate. So yeah, there's a lot that goes in. And you know, one of the best ways to manage that kind of risk is diversifying. So you don't just have one deal on, you have many, many deals that you're playing in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I had I had a little bit of a foray myself into the special situations world. I think anyone who reads Joel Greenblatt's book, the I think it's the, one of the bad titles, that you, can be, you can be a stock market genius, that one where he talks about spinoffs and all these special situations. And I think, yeah, there definitely is elements of inefficiencies there. I think arbitrage some do argue that oh yeah because the information is just instant just happens automatically that uh, unless you put in like algorithms or something it's harder for people to just do it manually um, especially now I think I think before though like I would read those old financial investment books and they talk about all these strategies and I'd be thinking can I still do that now um, but yeah I, I Sorry, uh, I would say, as you as you've put it, most of the ability to do those <laughs> types of strategies, certainly the merger arbitrage. I, I mean, when you think about it, in the in the older days, knowing that there was a merger was the advantage, right? Like one company was buying the other company. Like if you could find out earlier than others, right? So some people had ticker tapes and whatnot before it got into the newspaper the next day. So you had some 
uh, let's say 24-hour time advantage before you know other the rest of the world found out but but now everything's instantaneous it's disseminated globally right effectively yeah. at the same time right so so though the, certainly that trade has disappeared it does reappear periodically right so during market significant market downturns and just a general change in the deal environment but but like you said the investing world has changed over time yeah and so you you start out in the special situations world and so um i know that as part of t asset management you eventually go on to become the head of you know head of value and hedge funds and so was that all part of the special situation you seem you stayed there the whole time until you became the head of like these all these various teams or did you continuously switch around to different strategies hopefully or hoping to go into more fundamental equities type uh team well i guess it's an evolution right mm. the, the the changes happened and they took time mm. so the the first part let's say about the first uh, 10 years that i was at tds management i was managing a money on behalf of the bank so that's mm. called proprietary capital and we ran a variety of strategies generally special situations so distressed debt and merger arbitrage we were also doing some commodity arbitrage where we would be long let's say alcan which at the time was a producer of aluminum so you could be long alcan and short the aluminum futures and vice versa depending on what was happening and so so while that was still going on, you know, the world's changing, right? So merger arbitrage isn't as profitable as it once was. Other areas are opening up, potentially pairs trading. And so my career just sort of moved on or evolved over time. So when you do distressed debt, you're getting a lot of fundamental work anyway in investment banking. When you do the comparables analysis and past transactions, you really have to go through because nowadays everything's far more uh, far more automated in those days you had to go through the financial statements do the fundamental work to get the actual precedent transactions now it's there's databases on this stuff right so it's it's much it's much different than in those days so the the training on the investment banking side was certainly very helpful and then it it morphed into as proprietary trading or proprietary investing on behalf of financial institutions went away as a result of the great financial crisis, then other opportunities did open up at, at TD Asset Management. That would have been more on the mutual fund side. So then I moved on to managing value value equities where I could use that fundamental analytical capability. Mm. And so as you progressed um, up in your role, so you became the head of like the value side and you also became the head of the core Canadian equities team and head of like, innovative solutions. So those are very like different teams to constantly manage, but is there, was there kind of a split in how involved you were in the investing process, like pre and post becoming head um, of teams? So if I, when I talk to like accounting partners, she'll talk about, oh, there's the pre-partner days and the post-partner days where pre-partner days you're kind of, the, way you run the day-to-day what you do is completely different from post after becoming a partner and then now you're just trying to actually get clients and manage a firm for example did you experience something like that as well when you transitioned into being more leading out all these different various teams for sure so so when you're on the proprietary investing side the client is effectively the bank right Mm. so you have one 
one client. And then when you go to manage mutual funds, you have many, many clients, right? And then when you go to manage many different mandates, they can be institutional mandates or high net worth mandates or mutual fund mandates. Now you've got different types of clients that you have to that you have to manage. So as you move to d- d- different areas and different parts of the role in the investing world, you do it does change. So when you're on the proprietary side, a lot of time is just spent analytically, right? So uh, how do you analyze the investment? How do you weigh the risk reward? How do you diversify the portfolio? But then when you move to have a different set of clients, the teams are much bigger, right? So there's delegation of duties, what you do changes, you meet more with clients than than I had in the past, right? You have more support on the analytical side in the investment function. So you have uh, teams of people that work with you, analysts and associates uh, that, that help you out on the investment side. But you also have help when you're also managing clients. So, and then there's the whole people management function as well, right? So uh, you're managing a team of people, there's the investment side, there's the client side. So a lot more things are happening. And did you find yourself gravitating towards more of a certain kind of work? So I know, for example, in my previous role uh, at Moore, some some analysts just don't want to deal with clients or they don't want to deal with uh, the people side as much. They just want to invest. You just want to analyze companies. That's all you want to do. And so they'll just focus on that. Um, but for you, because you're leading a team and you might have to dip your hand into a lot of different things, did you still find yourself like, gravitating towards, I want to spend a little more time in this other area? Well, there's always going to be some pushes and pulls, right? Mm-hmm. Like So so there's, not, there's no way to set up your career or the time during the week where it's going to be whatever, a, a third investments, a third people management, and a third clients, right? So there's going to be some days or weeks that are 100% one thing and other days or weeks where it's going to be 100% something else. But uh, to me, I, I really enjoyed all the different aspects, right? So there's skills to develop on all things. So if you if you look at, let's say, people management, if you're good at you know helping people build their skills, training, you know, it helps in, in other things, right? So you take that and you spend a lot of time, let's say, managing people. You can take that skill and when you go back to the investing world, you know, how do you assess talent that's running some company, right? So it certainly coexists nicely with the ability to enhance your investment skills, mm. right? Meeting clients, understanding what they're after, because what happens in, in the investment world, as, as you know very well, is that evolution takes place, right? Like there's products evolve, what's available evolves. So... Uh, ETFs, which are very prevalent today, would have been pretty much nowhere a decade ago, right? Uh, certainly compared to the growth that they've had over the last uh, five to ten years. So, uh, how do you use that, and you know, how do clients think about whether the, what parts of their own portfolio they can manage, right? So, if they, you know, they say, okay, uh, we can manage this in-house, but we need some help here right and the reason we can manage more in-house is because of the technological developments that have taken place such as etfs or you know if you look back far enough you know options trading wasn't anywhere if you go back 50 or 60 years ago but then when you get the options exchanges that come along right 
that's helpful because now you've got a, a clearing and ability to clear and both you have both sides of the trade the buy and the sell side going through an exchange and but now you need volume so because if there's no volume it doesn't help you but over time you know if you look at it as long as you're in large liquid whether it's stocks or ETFs there are ways to even use options right so when you look at it technological innovation complexity all that's changed over the last 10 20 30 50 years mm -hmm. right? the ability to trade more products how the products are designed right how to how to blend things together and so with that kind of uh, evolution in financial products and the investing markets constantly changing but how did that uh, I'm, I'm guessing more so that that probably had a factor in you leaving TD to join a boutique investment management firm. How did that decision process come about? You know, because from the outside looking in, it looks as if hey, you're you're ahead of all these different groups in the second biggest bank in Canada, and you probably manage billions of dollars by a lot of different standards from a lot of people. They might think, ah, you know, you you've made it. You're managing a lot of money. It's probably going good. And then you leave that to go join a small investment management firm with under 10 people. How did that decision process uh, come about? Well, you know, there's there's different challenges in life, right? So so here here the 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 the, the interesting aspects are there's uh, the 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 investment function is different, right? So there's far less people to manage. There's uh, much less complexity, but the depth of thought that you can bring into the investment thinking goes goes up because you get more time to spend on really two aspects, right? One is uh, the clients and the other is the investment. So uh, as opposed to when you're in a, in a bigger place, there's just more things to, to balance out, right? So there's uh, people management and, and uh, investment management and client management and, and as you mentioned firm management but here it's mainly two things and that's managing clients and managing investments so uh, the ability to go uh, very deep into both of those areas certainly appealed appealed to me and you know it, it's just it's a different challenge right there's there's different things like accounting had its uh, accounting has its challenges it had its fun times there are lots of interesting things to do in audit uh, as opposed to just the regular year-end audits there were special audits and special assignments that came up and you know everything's everything's interesting and you know I'm always open to new challenges and uh, how, how did uh, your friends or your family react to the news when you said yeah you know after about 20 years or so at TD, I, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go to a smaller firm, I'm, I want the challenge. What was the reaction from your nearby support groups? I think most people are happy for you, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, life's short, right? So whatever decisions you want to make, uh, you know, as long as they seem somewhat reasonable, <laughs> I think people are supportive, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, like, looking back on it I'm trying to think of somebody who wasn't supportive but I can't think of anybody like people were generally supportive lots of people um, you know just they said yeah it's great you know you've been at a big place for a long time now you're doing something entrepreneurial you're you know helping to run a smaller business right so it's it's you know 
everyone you know everyone was happy for me right mm-hmm. everyone was supportive everyone said okay you know you had a certain set of challenges before you're gonna have a very different set of challenges now and you, know, you should be prepared for the change and how how um how did you manage this kind of um for example did you have thoughts about leaving earlier on in your career when you were in td asset management and if you did how did you come and say no not now's not the time let's do it maybe later on like how, how did that uh, constant thought process go um i think maybe early on yeah i would have had thoughts about uh, leaving but i'm trying to think about like what the what i would have been thinking is the the trade-offs right it would have been okay i'm in special situations but that doesn't mean you have to leave td you could try to move on to the the fundamental investing side as opposed to doing special situations right or if you're unable to get the slot in at td maybe there's you know a different institution that you could join if you wanted fundamental investing but but that would have been really the the, the thought would have been more how do i get different experiences and broaden out my investment career as opposed to uh, trying to leave for some particular decision right so when i look back on it i've got you know experience in derivatives and experience in uh, fixed income and special situations and shorting and uh, long only so i've got a broad set of investment skills like we've looked at commodities and futures and currencies and and a lot of different things so you know i'm very appreciative to be able to have had that kind of that kind of career and i think when you go down you know if you look at you know how do you manage currency or how do you manage derivatives i mean a lot of it gets down to okay what's the risk reward like a lot of the same fundamental principles whether you're looking at long only fundamental investing or you're looking at shorting stocks or you're looking at different investment areas you do have to at least to me a lot of the same principles still apply right Mm -hmm. i mean you have to learn the the new products and how they trade and what the upside downside could be and maybe you have to make other types of trade-offs maybe you have to use options and then you have to use futures so it's different products maybe you have to blend the products together in order to get the trade-offs that you want to have but but overall i mean everything sort of comes together right like the, the more products you see the more situations that you see at least in my opinion it, it tends to make you a better investor yeah and so now when we talk about uh, when we start exploring your role right now as a managing director of PMC, how does uh, your, uh, I guess, mandate look? Are you managing one portfolio where you're in charge of everything from fixed income, currency, equi- equities, and all these different strategies, however you see fit? Or are you taking, are you just specializing in one area? Um, so I spend most of my time in two main areas, right? One would be uh, global equities and the other is in fixed income right and th- that's how i generally spend my time in addition to the time i spend uh, with uh, with the firm's clients but on the investment side those are the two main areas and then there's some sectors that i spend a little bit more time with like real estate investment trusts so real estate companies and that i would do uh, all all like globally mm, okay and so if if we were to look at your uh let's say a month worth of activities as we would as looking at like a company's operations and if you could segment it by the percentage of time you would spend how would it look so for example when i was an investor i would say okay about 20 percent of my time is meeting with company management about 
40-50% is just sitting down, reading reports, reading research, and then another maybe 20-30% is actually in team meetings or talking with team members, uh, sharing ideas, etc. So that's how maybe I would segmentize my activities. How would yours look? I wouldn't say that they're that much uh, that much different. Like certainly yeah. if you're breaking it down on the investment side of things, that split seems reasonable to me. Now, I would have a, also a split where it's part investment, part client, right? So th- there would be that split. But on the investment side, that's pretty much the split th- that I would have where you said, you know, 20% in discussions, uh, I think 50 to 60% just sitting down by yourself trying to figure things out, right? Like doing a lot of reading, just trying to get a better understanding of the company and the industry and the people that run it. And then 20% outside discussions, whether that's with analysts, meeting company management, going to conferences, that kind of thing. Mm. And so if we looked at then the layer above between investment and client, how would that split look in terms of time spent? That's always a tough one, right? So it really depends on the day or the week or the month, right? So uh, sometimes I would say it's 80-20 one way and it can be 80-20 the other way Mm. depending on the week, right? So sometimes you just get uh, more people who want to visit and sometimes you just get less. Like It's like, you know, I try to, you know, you, you try, like there's no perfect breakdown or perfect fraction of how you spend your time. But but if you have to say it that way, like you, you try to even it out. So spend as much time with your clients as they would like to spend with you, right? And then, you know, spend the rest of the time uh, on investments mm-hmm. and make sure that you know the companies and you're on top of your companies that you've invested in, you're on top of new opportunities, you're on top of changes in the market and whatnot. And in terms of when you were choosing to take on this role, um, I'm sure you had various expectations about, okay, I'm, you, know, you start imagining, okay, when I do this job, it's probably going to turn out like this, it's, this is probably what I'm going to learn and experience. But I find that from my experience, the reality is also quite different to you. you. You get a lot of different surprises, good and bad. And so for you, what were the big things that came on as uh, surprises with differences in expectation versus reality? You know, when I left investment banking, so so when I went from accounting, which was pretty busy, to the investment bank, so I was on the mergers and acquisition side, that got very busy in, in terms because you're just following the deal flow pattern. So you're moving from one mergers and acquisitions deal to the next. So it's pretty busy, uh, pretty busy life. And then when I moved to the investment side, it was just very quiet. Like you don't you don't get as many emails. The phone doesn't ring, so that's the big adjustment, right? And I found the same thing here. It's just uh, because in the old in the old days, I had like people management, right, firm management, whatnot. And then when you first start off, once again, it was it was the same as moving from investment banking to investment management the first time. Like it just it's quiet, right? And you just have to learn to deal with solitude which I don't mind and you just you, know, you, you get to read a lot more about investing and, and and what's going on in the world and look at a wider array of things at the beginning and then you know the pace changes over time right like as you um, you know as you get clients uh, like instead of spending 
100% of your time reading. It just changes right now. You have client meetings. And so so, so I would say that that was the main. It, it's the adjustment factor when you go from one, like in any time you go from one role to another. Like Sometimes it gets far busier. Sometimes it gets less busy. And you just have to be able to make the adjustments. Mm. And what would you say uh, comes up? Or actually, would you say there are differences between how the bank mutual fund model was like compared to the model that you have right now at a boutique investment management firm in terms of, let's say, how you handle clients or your investing process itself? Um, and if there are differences, what kind of differences kind of pop out? Well, I would say that the major difference, the, the major difference here is that each uh, each portfolio is unique to the client. So, so, so you also get that on on the bank side. But let's say when you run a mutual fund, right? I mean, that's just one big portfolio, and there's lots of different clients. So each of the diff- different clients are actually sharing one portfolio. Now, they have the option to mix their holding of one fund with another fund, and they're doing whatever they want to do. But the the one portfolio or the one mutual fund is shared amongst them. Here, here it's just different. Like depending on what a client's risk tolerance is, they'll have a different, let's say, equity weighting versus another client, right? And, you know, part of it's age dependent, part of it's risk tolerance levels, and you know, stage of life, and you know, other events that are happening mm. in their life, right? So, yeah. But but I would say that when I look at one of the bigger differences, certainly very tailored and unique to the client is how the portfolios are structured. Now, that also happened on the bank side, but it depends on which of the different mandates you're looking at, right? Right. And and so then, because it has to be tailored, do you find that you spend a lot of time in the beginning just trying to really learn more about the client as much as you can, like get it on a more personal level, and then tailor the portfolio? Or like how, do, how do you manage that relationship? Is it a constantly evolving one where you realize that, okay, the client kind of wanted this thing, but after talking to them and actually getting to know them, I, we've kind of discovered, yeah, your risk tolerance isn't that high, so we have to now constantly change the portfolio. Like, Does that happen? Well, I think you do your best to get an understanding of what their risk tolerance is at the beginning, mm. right? But risk tolerances do change, right? So if you have, uh, you know, if you start a family, your risk tolerance may change, right? So uh, your risk tolerance changes depending on your job. So if you decide to take a couple of years off, your risk tolerance would change, right? It would go from maybe seeking growth in your portfolio to, listen, I I can't take the downside as much because, you know, for two years I'm not going to be earning any income and then I'm not sure what kind of income I'm going to have when I come back. So there's always changing circumstances and and they can happen to any one client or any group of clients. So there's there's lots of things to, to manage. There's very rarely the one client who has, you know, is stable th- throughout a very long period of time. There's always client-specific issues that, that happen or their preferences just change mm-hmm. over time, right? And as, as investors, you know, I, I find that looking at your career is... Um, as an investment is one way where um, some some I know for example one particular person that person was in finance and when that person looked at the competitive landscape in finance they didn't like what they saw and they said you know what 
I don't want to do this. I'm going to go be a software engineer. So they became a software engineer. Um, and for you, when you look at uh, the job that you're doing and the industry that we're in, in terms of the asset management industry, what is the com- competitive landscape like um, for a boutique investment management fund? Uh, I Well, there's always spots for different firms, right? And it depends on where where you define the area that you want to where you want to fit in. So when you think about uh, how some of the bank run asset managers, uh, they have a distribution model, right? A lot comes through their branches, but they also have a lot of institutions. But there's always there's lots of these smaller uh, smaller boutique managers. There's some that specialize in value, or some of those specialize. On uh, only international equities, and some that may specialize in small cap. So there are there to me, the marketplace is always evolving. There's always place for lots of different players. There there'll be specialty players that will deal with tax advantaged products, right? So there may be a boutique that only deals with tax advantaged products. So there's lots of boutiques. There's lots of different client needs. So one client may may need. Uh, may uh, you know use one provider for one thing, but then say, okay, for tax advantage products, I'm going to go to provider X Y Z for something like that, right? So, so there, there's lots of different specialty areas that are that are in the marketplace, right? And so, and then some people prefer a smaller firm to a bigger firm. Some people prefer a bigger firm to a smaller firm, and there's just lots of crosswinds that are happening in as people make their decisions and that exist in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think from my time, it it was apparent that, and I think you hear in the news about how, yeah, a lot of, you're seeing more kind of buy-side shops starting to close down, especially I think the traditional, highly like Buffett-style, Graham-style, value-oriented guys were closing down because they chose not to invest in Apple and Amazon and all the fang companies earlier on. Um, and um, we are also seeing in Canada, like, we're seeing a bit of a, I guess, consolidation of asset managers as well. How do you, um, obviously the caveat is that our forecast can be wrong, but from your perspective, what is your uh, view on this evolution of the money management industry and the kind of Canada-Toronto sphere right now? Uh, well, when when you look at how it's how the money management industry sort of evolving, right? So if you go back, I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty, seventy years, just uh, picking, uh, let's say, public equities or fixed income, you know, that was a a, diff, a different skill set. It was a unique skill set, right? And it couldn't be replicated as easily. By the marketplace, so but now that you've had the, you know, the evolution into ETFs, if you just want to buy the market, there is that option to just buy an ETF. Now the issue is you've you've got to have the wherewithal to hang on to that ETF during periods of market distress, right? So 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 that that's an important factor. So when you look at the role advisors play, the the role that they play is still. Uh, you've got to, you know, assist the client through the difficult times, right? But when you look at how the the marketplace is is going through its changes, you're starting to see 
boutique firms in other areas, right? So they're still in investment management, but different areas. So when you look at, let's say, maybe public equities, you're getting less of the sort of standard public equity shop, but you're getting it in private equity, you're getting it in real estate, you're getting it in you know international ventures, like how do you do things? Let's say somebody wanted to set up a, a, a boutique firm that only did you know, real estate in Europe. I'm sure there's there's an audience for that and uh, people who would be interested in investing in uh, European real estate, ass assuming there's a, a reasonable investment case for it and the client base is there for that. So so, so in some ways, uh, the, there's, the, the mainstream is, is going one way, but then there's lots of different specialty areas that seem to be opening up. So when you look at it, private equity really didn't exist in the way it does 30 years ago, right? Uh, today, there's private equity. It's not just when you go to the traditional way that the industry started was mainly leveraged buyouts, right? And you don't hear much as much about that. Certainly, the private equity firms can add the, the leverage, as can you know other players. But now it's about how do you improve the operations and what other things can you bring to the table? Can you uh, merge with other entities? Uh, do you take it public so you get the currency up and then merge with other private entities? There's lots of different things that are happening. So, but when you look at the marketplace on the investment side, it's really there are lots of places for specialty and boutique firms. It's just that the nature of what some of the boutique firms, the nature of what they do is changing. Yeah, I think that, so that's actually something I've been thinking about too in terms of, I, I, I think as you explained, it's kind of a polarization of the market where there will be just bigger, like even bigger players, but few of them, but also just thousands of small players who just become really niche in their specific areas like we're only going to do japanese real estate in hokkaido or something and i think we will probably see more of that where people start to just really focus on specialized areas of yeah this is going to be the area that i'm going to dominate and i'll just be really good at this investing style uh, right and you and you can see it like like it, to take that analogy a bit further you can see it even on amazon with just focusing on books right like there's the self-published authors that can get some type of audience on some of these distribution platforms like Amazon, where if you go back 30 or 40 years, you're not, you, you had to get to a, a publisher and then they publish the book for you. But now you can get your own audience, which is exactly what you're saying that, you know, you have a few bigger players and it seems reasonable that the industry would consolidate because in order to deliver those products, you're trying to do it at the lowest cost. And, you know, if you can provide a low cost investment alternative, for clients they'll go for that uh, having said that you do uh, there's also going to be a need for the specialty areas and the specialty areas seem to be more and more so like you said if they're uh, you buying real estate in certain areas of japan i certainly don't have the specialty for that but if the investment case was there that you can make you know decent upside don't take much downside, I'm sure there'd be an audience for that in Canada or the U.S. or Europe or Japan itself, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like a reasonable way for the, for the industry to evolve. But like you said, it's hard to know, right? You're predicting the future, right? You can always have 100% uh, forecasting accuracy at predicting the past. The future is just a lot more difficult to do, and uh, it's a lot more important to, 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 be able to, uh, to be able to do that. But, you know, you need a big margin of error because it's near impossible to do, right? Like, uh, to, uh, 
to, to predict, you know, how changes take place, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if we kind of sh- uh, shift gears to, you know, we kind of talked about the evolution of the markets. If we were to talk about the evolution of your career, and as you said, we can forecast, um, forecast the past with 100% accuracy. So if you look back at your past, what were the, uh, I guess, common mistakes that you felt that you or your kind of colleagues or friends made in terms of their career? Like when you look back in hindsight and you go, man, like, I can't believe I did that. Or, yeah, that was a big lear- mistake that I did learn from. What were the big common ones that really stuck out? One of them that would have stuck out if you, if I had to talk to people in my peer group, would have been not taking enough risk early on in their careers. So, uh, going to safer careers um, earlier on, and then not taking risk on, right? So, should you have started your own business when you were twenty-five, right? Because you can start your own business at seventy-five. It's just probably not the, the you know you have to have the energy and you know a decent time horizon and the you know the interest and whatnot to be able to do that but i would say if i had to look back on it and say okay in my peer group what would what would be the most common what would be the most common thing that they would look back on and say that they would have that they would have liked to have changed would have been taking on more career risk earlier earlier on like mm-hmm. so starting your own business or moving to a different country to do business or for a different job and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i think some people obviously there's two sides uh to this thought but one side for that kind of um taking the risk a little earlier on is some people say oh but you kind of want to get more experience and i want I want to get more career capital, build that up before I start something. And I think that's where some people might get caught up in that wheel of constantly saying, do I have enough experience? Maybe not. I'll, I'll stay a little longer. I'll get a little more experience. And then they eventually miss the boat at certain times where they say, now I just don't have enough energy or I just feel that I'm just too deep and I can't take that risk anymore. How, do you, how, how would you say um, like some, your peer group talks about having managed that saying, well, there's certainly no perfect time. Yeah. Right? There's no perfect time to do anything. And if we go back to the 100% accuracy of forecasting the past, right? Certainly when you look back on it, you say, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. But th- that's looking back. But if you can look forward, you do have all those concerns. Okay, so I go to a foreign country. But what happens if I want to come back? Right? How do I get a job back here? Maybe they have family commitments. You know, are my skills transferable after one year? It's probably easier. After three years, it starts to get, you know, harder. After ten years, right? Like, you know, at the same time, your your home base is changing and the requirements are changing. But whatever you're doing in a different country may be changing, right? So, so so there's lots of different. As you point out, it may not be as easy a decision. It's easy to look back and say I should have done this, but you know, there's many paths, and you don't know looking back on it what the right answer would have been like it could have been a disaster Mm -hmm. right so i think it's completely normal for somebody looking forward to say yeah i'd prefer a bit more experience but then life gets in the way right like 
who knows what happens you get down a certain career track because a lot of things are path dependent right like you get down certain paths uh, you know what happens if you said i always wanted to be an investment manager but your promotions are coming very very quickly in in the accounting firm right so you're jumping levels very quickly in the accounting firm so now you're on that path and you get pretty path dependent and pretty soon you wake up and you're 38 years old going wow i always wanted to be an investment manager but now i'm a partner at an accounting firm right so how do you like, like there's lots going on life's getting in the way decisions everything's messy right so there's no there's no you're gonna have to make trade-offs in life and you may not always make the right trade-off so you just try to do the best you can and not be that hard on yourself yeah i think what you talked about in terms of the the path dependency i think that's there's a big i think um it's just very evident because like you said about how even for investment management back when you were trying to go in or even going to like investment banking it wasn't as streamlined as right. it is now and i think now because a lot of career paths are extremely streamlined and people love efficiency and optimizing things and so there are just very distinct paths everywhere and yeah. so i think it's becoming more evident for most people in one path to say yeah but i see my path now like i it's, it's streamlined i i just go along this track and it's so much easier to just go this wheelhouse and i one part of me actually thinks that it's actually getting harder for people to break out of that path because there's so many paths that are laid out and just efficiently um put in front of you compared to before when everything was potentially even messier and there's a lot more uncertainty like you could have a doctor go be a fund manager and it wasn't that weird but now it's more yeah but you're on a straight path you're not on like that fund manager path you should go be a doctor and just go all the way to be chief of surgeon or something yeah i i, I to, to me the options are really opened up right and they seem to be harder for people at least at least for me it's easier to choose among two options than it is among 20, right? Because how do you get it down to one? Because you can only take one, like if you're looking at it and you say, okay, I got two job offers. Uh, one is to go down the medical path and the other is to go down, I don't know, the engineering path or the accounting path, whatever. It's easy to pick one. You have certain likes and dislikes, but now there's like shades of color here, right? So. You can go down the medical path, but there's lots of things. You can be a pharmacist, you can be a physiotherapist, you can, like, there's lots of sub or specialties within that, but you can be a doctor, a dentist, lots of different things. But then when you look at, you know, engineering, okay, there's the standard groupings of civil, chemical, electrical, mechanical, all that stuff. But now there's nano, there's software, and then there's the that engineering part and then there's computer programming like how do you choose between those things and then the other thing that i always like to think about is there is a a certain amount of of time and energy that you tend to spend in one area and then you've it's a sort of like climbing a tree right you climb to the highest branch you can and then it's like wow i learned a lot but you know now that i've climbed the maple tree i want to go climb the elm tree right so you get down and then you, you just you take on different challenges in, in life right so it may be that you know you've done 20 years as a doctor and you go you know 
I really want to retrain for something else and I'm willing to take on the career risk and the financial risk and I you know I just want to lead travel teams through Asia right so I want to take tour groups through Asia I think that'd be really interesting and then you do that for five or seven years then you find out wow you know this has been really fun but now what I want to do is I've always wanted to uh, play the saxophone right so and then I've always loved music and you just sort of move along and when when I look at different people's careers it seems to be that people do spend some number of like there are the ones who spend a long time in one career but even that career if you go into the details is changing right the the clients are changing the situations they're facing are changing or there's others where you know it's 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 very abrupt changes right like doctor traveler musician whereas even if you looked at let's say an accounting firm partner i'm sure they did they've done lots of different things but it's just under one big uh, umbrella yeah no i 100 percent agree i think it's all a matter of relative perspective like i was talking to a guy who was a product manager at a tech startup and he was saying yeah like you've you have a very bread and butter career you were in accounting and then you went to consulting and then you went to investment management that seems very typical for anyone in business and i said oh i don't think so at all but i guess from your perspective yeah it could be um but yeah no i totally agree and i think some people like there's a there's a thought that when you do that climb up the tree and you come back down and you go climb another tree that you're kind of tossing things away people have this sunk cost fallacy but the way i see it is when you climb that tree you got stronger so when you climb another tree you'll probably be stronger from training at something else completely different before but you find a way to apply it like when i was an accountant i sure i did accounting so i learned accounting numbers and i got good at spreadsheets and reading financial statements so when i went to consulting I became the modeling guy and found out that most consultants actually couldn't read financial statements. A lot of them actually couldn't. Um, so then I could use all my accounting skills. And then I did a lot of like different various projects in consulting, like ERPs and stuff. Now I go to investing. Turns out ERPs are a great business to invest in because they're so sustainable in cash flows and it has high recurring revenue. So now all that's actually very uh, applicable. And then... I started looking at ERP companies. I go, oh yeah, I used to implement these in my consulting gig, so I actually know how these work. And so yeah, I think there's always ways to implement whatever you built up from the past, and always try to use it to your advantage in some other way. Oh, I agree completely. Right, like you just have to look at, as opposed to the job title or the firm or the industry you work in, what skills did you gain, right? So when I hear what you're saying, okay, so I gained these financial analytical skills, right? And then you move to consulting and you could use that, but then you added some more skills, which is understanding a particular type of business, which is, you know, the ERP area, right? And then you take that and, okay, now I'm investing, so I can use my financial analytical skills and my understanding of, you know, the, the computer, uh, you know, software area and, you know, make investments in that area because I just have deeper knowledge than than an outsider would. So, yeah, yeah, to me, and that that's exactly it. Like, that's how you, you apply it. But it tends to be more skill-based, right? So this is the skill or the industry I got exposure to. My understanding's deeper, and I can take that somewhere else. Like, you could, you know, start a medical records business, right? I think you could, Daniel, like you've got the bright background in, in accounting, you got the right background in software. So could you do something along those lines? Sure. 
Yeah, totally. Instead, I started a podcasting business. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even the way I saw it too was that yeah, like even for podcasting, like I've switched careers three times, so maybe I'll just use this as a way to just talk to more people that have different careers than just talk about that. Well, it's certainly a great way to to talk to different people with different career paths and you know different ideas and different different interests, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and and so so for you, um, if kind of quote going on the closing questions that I ask uh, most interview guests. What's the belief that you have that you feel goes against conventional wisdom? And it can be from an investment standpoint, from a career standpoint, or just like you can go more specific to an educational standpoint, for example. That's uh, That goes against conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. right? I find, well, well, certainly investing is an interesting area, right? And people tend to equate activity to performance. And when you think about, think about that, it's really patience that generates the investment return, right? So it's not the constant trading of the stocks or the bonds you own, but it's just the sitting there and not messing, not messing it up, right? And I, I would say that, 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 that's very hard for for the majority of people uh, to do, right? It's hard to really just analyze something, sit there, and then wait it out for that, for those outcomes uh, to take place, right? So if you had a three to five year horizon, but then, you know, you invest and then tomorrow the market's down 10% and your investments go with it. Okay, how, how do you stay the course? How do you have the confidence to do that? I, I find lots of people say they can do it, but when you look at the turnover rates of stocks on whether it's the New York Stock Exchange or you know Toronto Stock Exchange or whatever, they're incredibly high, right? So uh, what people are saying and then what people are doing is very, very different. So, so I would say uh, in that case, actions speak louder than words. So it's really, you know, how do you, how do you stay the discipline? How do you have the discipline to, to hold through your positions? So, so, so that would be one. But I wouldn't say like, the, the issue, let's say, if you're talking around career advice, it's really personal, right? So in some cases, career advice uh, is meaningful. In other cases, it doesn't, it doesn't work. The world, the world has changed. Like one of the questions I get is, Anish, if I follow a somewhat similar education path, like, do you think I can get into the investment business? And it's like, well, it, the, the investment is very different now, right? So I would say some of the major skill groups probably apply but the delivery so how you can get exposed to those skills is different right so uh, I'm a chartered business valuator by training but a lot of the valuation skills you can now get in school in university through university courses which just weren't as freely available then as they as they are now so one is when you look at people's careers just remember the, the world has changed since they made their decisions and they took their courses and they followed their career paths like a lot of those doors have closed or don't exist anymore so it's really important career-wise when, when you hear advice just to make sure that that reality still exists today because it's it's changing and it's uh, it's changing quite quite rapidly like when you look at where the opportunities seem to be it seems to be in some type of blend of uh, like fundamental knowledge and un- having programming skills or quantitative skills like it seems to be some blend of that 
seems to be an important skill set to have as opposed to some of the other skills that may have been more valuable in the past Mm -hmm. right so driving a stagecoach whether it was knowing how to build one right knowing how to attach it to the horses knowing how to drive one those skills uh, aren't there anymore but certainly when you think about it okay well if i know how to drive a stagecoach maybe i'm good with horses so you know i can you know, people who want to take horseback riding lessons at works or, you know, the, you have to go back to the fundamental skills here, right? So if you define your skills very narrowly, that's an issue. But if you divide them far more broadly, like building stagecoaches involves woodwork and metalwork and all that stuff. And that's also very helpful. So you have to, you have to define yourself more by your skills as opposed to your job. Uh, because that's how, like, certain jobs that existed 50, 100 years ago are gone, but some of the skills are still here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's excellent. That's an excellent um, point of view. I, that I also, like, 100% to agree with as well. And so let's say um, you're a 20-year-old self, so yourself, like, try to imagine back in, like, third-year university yep. is looking at you right now, what you've accomplished, the life you lead, and... What do you think the emotional reaction would be from that 20-year-old self? Would it be like surprise or um, just really happy for you that, okay, this is, I'm really happy where you ended up? Or is it, would it be something more like, yeah, like that's exactly what I expected? Um, what do you think the emotional reaction would be? So I grew up on a farm, so to 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 come from there to here, if I had to go back and talk to the 20-year-old self, I think it would be surprise, <laughs> right? Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to go back to the 20-year-old self, right? But I think when people look back at success, like if you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish when you were 10 years old or 12 years old, that's probably, because otherwise a lot of things get clouded. Right. So uh, did you accomplish what you wanted to? Like, are you happy? Like how, like, how stressful a life do you lead as, as opposed to uh, like, if I look at my 25, 20 year old self, it would have been, okay, what accomplishments have I had? You know, where did I get to all that stuff? I don't even look at that anymore. It's like, okay, so do I enjoy what I do? Right. So yes. Right. Do, do I have a job where I enjoy the people I interact with? Yes. Right. And do I, um, you know, is, is my life fun enough and it's got enough stress and not enough stress so it's well balanced? Yes. Now, that would be the judgments I would put forth today as opposed to the 20 year old self would be very goal driven, at least my 20 year old self. Right. But, you know, when you look at as you get if you go back even younger, you don't really think like that. It's more like, OK, to have fun, to have fun with playing with my friends did i get a chance to play soccer or you know were the activities that i did fun right were the people i hung around with and played soccer with or whatever uh, fun did i have enough time to play soccer and read my books and do whatever fun i would say i go back more to those qualitative thoughts as opposed to uh, i just found that you know the, the the teens and the 20s it's very it's much more accomplishment driven it seems to be getting more so today like when i when i certainly look at the resumes of people like yourself uh, certainly far more accomplished than i would have been at those at those dates but uh, so so it would have been tough for somebody like me to compete against you know you and your your peer group right it's just a different 
it's just different, right? How I grew up and and whatnot. But if I looked at, you know, am I happy and all that? Uh, yes. But would the twenty year old be surprised? I would assume so, right? Because mm-hmm. the beginnings were modest. Mm-hmm. And and I think you brought up a good point in terms of actually taking the time to define success in your own terms instead of accomplishments that might be on your own terms but also I think a lot of times tend to be on someone else's terms um, so then would you say that if you were to give advice to that 20 year old self that was extremely goal oriented would you advise on maybe define success closer to the qualitative terms of what you're actually doing and the systems that that 20 year old self has in place uh, I would say more along those lines right yeah. now whether 20 year old self would listen whether 20 year old <laughs> self would care who knows Right, but I would try. Yeah, but I don't think twenty-year-old self would listen. Like <laughs> it, it's just the it's just the age you're at, the competitive level that you're at. Uh, don't forget, you're still coming out of your teens, where peer influence is very important. So if your peer group is very uh, driven, very ambitious, they're setting, okay, I want these goals, these goals, these goals. I think that's you're gonna. It's it's hard not to get caught up in it so to me you're, you're going to get caught up in it but can you try to pull away and you know like sort of have two selves right okay like your second self is you know outside of your body and saying okay is this really what you wanted are you really happy do you really like working till two in the morning do you really like doing excel spreadsheets do you really like doing this that it's hard to do with those at those ages but i think as you get as you get older you just get more comfortable with who you are and what you're able to do and what you like and what you dislike and but 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 part of the world is there's going to be parts you're going to of life you're going to enjoy and there's going to be parts of life that you don't enjoy but you got to do both right so if you can strike the right balance between you know what's interesting and what's less interesting and that the balance works for you i think that's a success mm. great no uh, thank you uh that was a really i think fun and insightful conversation i really do hope our listeners got a lot of value out of that as well um so yeah i just want to say thanks thanks a lot anish for coming on the podcast um and yeah i hope you also had a fun time as well yeah it was great i really enjoyed the conversation thanks for thanks for having me daniel all right great so thanks for listening to the podcast If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.